Chomsky explains anarchy like this. Ready? Primarily, anarchism is a tendency that is suspicious and skeptical of domination, authority, and hierarchy. It seeks structures of hierarchy and domination in human life over the whole range extending from, say, patriarchal families to, say, imperial systems, and it asks whether those systems are justified. It asks whether those systems are justified. Speaking of the system, he says their authority is not self-justifying. They have to give a reason for it, a justification. From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we're learning together how to walk in the age of Christian fulfillment. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for life. Thank you for loving us so much. You gave us your only human son who lived like we couldn't, died like we wouldn't, so that we could live again with you. We pray that you'll bless uh, Seth and Wendy and Mags and anybody else who uh, assists in keeping the shows out there going, archived and viewable, and we just pray that we will be able to talk about some things that are pertinent and important tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. I was at one time in my tempestuous search for God under the impression that prayers are pretty much for just learning how to accept God's will. Uh, I, I've never believed that we pray and we change God's mind. Um, and uh, that... Uh, I still think praying is, for the most part, for us to learn to accept what His will is in our lives. But I uh, was more adamant in the past that our prayers do not get Him to change His mind on matters or that uh, we get our will done if we say the right prayers. So recently, however, in our verse-by-verse teaching on Sundays, something dawned on me and I came to the realization that may or may not hold water, but I want to share it with you really quickly tonight. It seems to me in the environment of free will, God is somehow bound to doing what he, uh, would, he is bound and kept from doing from what he expressedly would like to do sometimes. And what I mean by this is there are events that occur on this earth where he is by self-mandate, meaning there's some thing out there, law, rule that says to God, if I impose myself in this situation, I'm going to remove free will. And therefore he can't act because if he does, he will cease to be a good God because he'll remove free will from the equation. And so he remains aloof to a situation because uh, if he got involved, he would not uh, be a good God. Uh, but I think that he may, from what I'm reading in Scripture, have opportunities open to him to operate due to our free will prayers. And this may be part of the reason why he doesn't uh, stop every car accident and, or every homicide or suicide from happening. But being good, he allows things to go as they are, and yet he can sometimes step in and do things, and it's because of the free will requests 
from people on this earth. It seems to be a biblical precedent established where God will intervene in people's lives if other people of their own free will and choice ask him or pray that he'll intervene. Now, I know that sounds kind of strange, but in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2, Paul writes to Timothy and Paul says to Timothy, finally, brethren, pray for us. He's asking them that the word of the Lord will have free course and be glorified even as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. And when I read that, I realized that perhaps in the reign of free will, that if believers or whoever pray to God, somehow their voice allows God to get in and act on the behalf of those who are asking. Versus if no one asks, maybe under in the environment of free will, he has to just let things happen the way they go. Paul's recommendation to Timothy so that he and his traveling companions could be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men was, uh, hey, pray for us. This will do it. And while whether to deliver or not in the face of such prayers is in the hands of God ultimately, so it really is his will, perhaps his ability to interfere and assist in this world is fortified when people of their own free will and choice offer up prayers to him on behalf of others. Perhaps the prayers of believers sent forth of, because they have the time, they have the inclination, they, they want to sacrifice part of their life to praying. Maybe God sees that and they, they collectively or individually amount to something that allows him then to step in. In the face of this, I see the importance of prayer and being more than just learning to accept God's will in our lives, but perhaps they actually serve to open up for God to be able to move and act. And with that being said, I got an email from an old friend in Los Angeles who watches the show. She says, Brother Sean, please, please, please pray for Armenia. It's so urgently needed. The evil dictatorships of Azerbaijan and Turkey are bullying, massacring, bringing terrorists jacked up on drugs to fight against spreading lies about and trying to exterminate my people again. I know this person. I've been in contact with her for years. They have proven themselves capable of unimaginable, horrendous things. And today, our 18-year-old brothers are having to live through this to protect our land. All of our men are ready to go and are going, but it's not fair, she says. This is a spiritual war as much as a physical one. And all we can do is pray because the odds are not in favor to survive. Sorry for being so emotional. There's nothing I've felt more strongly in my life. My country is on the verge of being exterminated because the 1915 genocide went unpunished and never again meant nothing, your sister in Christ. So those of you who know I am not political in the programs that we do should understand that I do not see my prayers as politically driven. Uh, any more than when I pray for our nation or whatever president is in office, I don't see those prayers as political. I see them as spiritual and something that I as a believer will offer up. And so I see our prayers now perhaps as reaching up to God on behalf of the suffering and the uh, injustice and pain that's going on in this world. And perhaps it's a means to tip the scale 
and uh, on behalf of those who are tormented around the world and it might somehow bring uh, a God into the picture who can alleviate or stop or uh, pause uh, the pain. So I just wanted to share that with you. And if you are led, you know, of our sister's plight for her people in Armenia, uh, pray. And I just wanted to talk about that. Now to something that's really, really important to me personally. So let's get into it. Over the years, people think they see a chink in the armor of our ministry because our weekly verse-by-verse teachings are called Campus, and that's an acronym for a Christian anarchist meeting to prayerfully understand Scripture. And while we say today that the A in Campus stands for any A word that you want to use, an artist, an academic, uh, an antiquarian, an advocate, whatever it is, use whatever A word you want. I am personally an anarchist uh, in the Christian sense of the word. And I'm going to explain more about that next week, about what it means in the Christian sense of the word uh, with more depth. But at the onset, let me say this. Most people who criticize the label anarchist do so without any understanding. And they do so typically as a means to besmirch me and who I am, you know, in the ministry. The title Christian Anarchist is actually a favorable title. It's a good title. It's not a bad title in the sense it's not saying I uh, believe all these horrible things as a Christian. And I want to take the time to establish where it came from, which I will fulfill next week in part two. Hang with me. It can be a little meaty, but it's worth the discussion. Um, It's very important to me, and I have clung to the title Christian Anarchist, meaning to prayerfully understand Scripture for years now without giving into it because it's so important. But I've never really articulated what it means, and I didn't really understand how to do that until I went back about 30 years or so ago, I, I learned about a guy uh, who has, uh, he's a, has a doctorate in linguistics from MIT, and he goes, he's also a political dissident, and his name is no, Noam Chomsky. Noam. I call him Noam. He's a linguist, and I call him Noam when his name's Noam. But I refer to call him Noam. I'm not calling him Noam. I'm calling him Noam Chomsky. And the, with the emphasis on the am, a little bit less, just like I'm not going to call my aunt, my aunt, my auntie. I'm going to call her my aunt, all right? And I'm calling him Noam Chomsky, all right? In any case, I can only understand the man so far because he's extremely intelligent and super well-read. And so I don't, don't think I'm trying to represent uh, him as a whole. I'm just taking what he brings to the table relative to anarchy and to help people understand how that applies to Christian anarchy, all right? So I'm going to use his secular teachings about anarchy in general to help support why I am a Christian anarchist, and that's an important thing to remember. Now, before we get into the best definition of anarchy, according to Dr. Chomsky, I want to address some historical ideas and actualities in the nation that will ultimately help me explain Christian and a Christian anarchist. And this begins 
by my attempting to describe what is called classical liberalism. Classical liberalism, which really got its legs through an English philosopher by the name of John Locke, who was greatly influenced by John Milton and was promoted by men like Adam Smith, a famous uh, writer, Adam Smith, and uh, William von Humboldt, where we get Humboldt University, and John Stuart Mill, all of them strongly espousing uh, consummate freedom in all forums of the human experience. Let me repeat that. All those names I just gave, going back to the 1600s and forward, all were focused on the consummate freedom in all forms of human experience. And that is what ultimately became formulated as classical liberalism. So like uh, Montesquieu and uh, Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson, they also had uh, and promoted classical liberalism. All right. So classical liberalism, which is very different from what people call liberalism today, very, very different, uh, all begins with the all-important notion of seeing human nature as unconstrained activity. Human nature as unconstrained activity. So you can already see why I am a Christian anarchist. Because a Christian anarchist then would be human nature within the faith as unconstrained activity. And I'm borrowing this from the secular uh, uh anarchists who are trying to get back to classical liberalism, and that's their whole point, which we'll talk about in a second. So from an early pamphlet espousing the nature of classical liberalism, we read, quote, to every individual in nature is given an individual property by nature, not to be invaded or usurped by any. No man has power over my rights and liberties and I know man, end quote. A great contributor to classical liberalism was this guy I mentioned named uh, Willem van Humboldt, uh, von Humboldt. He was born in the late 18th century, so sometime in the 1700s. Chomsky recites Humboldt on occasion, who said in effect something really important. Humboldt said, the craftsman who creates a beautiful work on command we may admire what he created, but we will despise what he is, a tool in the hands of others. And then he adds, if the craftsman creates out of his own desires, his or her own desires, commitment and search, we admire both the product created and the man or woman themselves. All right? So what he's saying is, it's really tough to admire somebody who is commanded to do something and they produce it and to, uh, and to admire them as a person. We might say, wow, when the corporation told you to create that thing, that's great. You did a great job. That thing you created is great. But you might, you'll we'll look at them and think, jeez. But if the guy or the woman creates something of their own accord, their own desires, their own search, without compulsion being involved, we'll admire both the end product and the person who created it. So the idea of classical liberalism was to have a society where every individual progresses in his or her own way, their own pace, according to what they are as individuals, 
allowing them to ultimately arrive at the place when they choose to contribute to their own life and to society as a whole. And uh, what, who they are and what they think in accordance with those things to the world around them. Again, with minimal, minimal interference from any outside powers or sources like government, religions, businesses, whoever. Minimal. That's the key to understanding this, right? So from this view, a classical liberal would naturally believe that any and all social organizations, universities, governments, churches, everything else, ought to then exist, encouraging every human being to engage in free, creative activity, which includes self-determination and self-direction. That's a radical view, but what it's saying is, listen, we don't need you to tell me how to think, live, believe, act, create. I will do it the way I feel I am led by my creator to do it, and I don't need your government, I don't need your my boss, I don't need any boss, I don't need a slave owner, I don't need anybody telling me I should do it their way, okay? So this is a super lean summary of the beginnings and the foundations of classical liberalism, omitting some really essential components like attempts to establish it in the French Revolution or in the Age of Enlightenment. Those two periods were really important to the idea of uh, classical liberalism. All right. But something happened, folks. And it was called the Industrial Revolution. And that was followed by the age of science and then the, ma- the age of mass production and then the age of digital revolution. And we've had a number of them. And all of those revolutions, industrial, beginning with the industrial revolution, they took the idea of classical liberalism and they essentially crushed it in the rubble of this thing called progress. We want to progress. We want to uh, make things better And so we are going to start to impose things upon people to make things more efficient, to make them more economical, to make them more uh, uh, available to the masses. And so in the Industrial Revolution, so we have classical liberalism, which says everything is about the individual's rights to do and, and live their life as they can and want with the minimal amount of infiltration. And then we have the Industrial Revolution come in and say, yeah, but wait, we want as a society to progress better. And so we're going to start imposing upon that idea. And it crushed essentially what classical liberalism, John Locke and and all those people uh, talked about. The Industrial Revolution de-emphasized what's called laissez-faire economics. And to further entrench the demands of capitalism, which was pretty much the byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and it's really not real capitalism. It's state-led capitalism. Very big difference between true capitalism and what we have here in our country. Um, because uh, real capitalism, according to Chomsky, can exist. Uh, only fake capitalism exists, where what happens is when big businesses get in trouble, there's government bailouts to help them stay alive and fruitful. That's called state-led capitalism. Real capitalism, you just are left on your own. And it, it typically does not work. 
because in the end it will fail. Now, again, I am not speaking an anti-capitalist and I'm not speaking as a communist. I'm telling you the roots of where I became a Christian anarchist. And it's all mixed in with this thinking that came with classical liberalism. So um, what Chomsky focused on himself is called anarcho-syndicalism. And all that is, and that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, that's a focus on uh, institutions and corporations learning to share the profits and wealth and ideas and freedom within that. That's anarcho-syndicalism. It's the syndicate and how that these ideas of uh, classical liberalism can be returned to the workforce. That that's not uh, me at all. Me at all, but me at all. But. Don't freak out. I'm not promoting anti-capitalistic mentality. I have no dog in that fight. What I am doing is explaining the, where, why we call ourselves Christian anarchists. Now, what most people say when it comes to like a state-led capitalism is, uh, uh, and all that comes with it is it's the best we've got. It's, I mean, it's not perfect by any means but it's the best we've got. And, you know, it's better than state-led communism, uh, which may or may not be true. I think it probably is. In fact, I, I'm pretty certain it is. But, you know, still there's a justification that in the face of it, much good has been and will continue to be done. That's what we say. So what we say is the Industrial Revolution crushed this idea of, of uh, liberal... Um, uh, uh, libertarianism really back in that day. It's not the same as libertarianism now, but it helped crush that. And we say, well, it's the best we've got. And, it, and there's a lot of good that happens. So what they mean to say is that of the capitalists who are out there providing jobs to people, most of them are good people. And most of them are providing jobs for others. And Everything that they do to care for those people and to treat their employees kindly and even contribute to the betterment of the community through taxation and through donations, it's good, right? That's what they say. I'm making this point because that's what we say about church. Well, there's problems, but most of it's good. I mean, people are doing their part. and they're, So it's not the best system, but most of it's good. And, 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 and it does more good than harm is the justification. Well, Chomsky points out that everything that we say about the, um, the good that capitalism does and everything that we say about the good that religion does, even though it's not perfect, can be said of slavery. There's no difference. Anybody who had slaves, uh, you can make the same argument. And, and so uh, Chomsky says that in a state-led capitalism, we have the same form going on, but just in a different uh, set and, and, and uh, as slavery, making them wage slaves. Now, this is absolutely ante uh, antithetical to um, classical liberalism, which is you choose how you're going to do things. You don't let infringing factors come in. So to illustrate this, um, Chomsky says, take a look at, 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 instead of looking at capitalism, look at slavery. Instead of looking at churches that do good, look at, look at slavery, all right? Um, he points out that all the good things that we might say about a good capitalist or a good, or a good uh, uh, church runner, good church pastor, or uh, might be said of a good slave owner, a good slave owner, and they were there. 
They provide jobs, slave jobs. They provided housing for their people. They were good. They weren't uh, evil slaveholders. They let their people have their own families. They helped feed them. They, they let them uh, do a number of things. And they even contributed the slave owners to society at large. So just because a slave owner is good, or just because a church pastor is good, or just because a, uh, uh, any of these things are good, uh, a state wage earner is good, it doesn't mean that the institution is good, is what he says. Chomsky points out, ironically, that often slave owners back in the day treated their slaves better than the free workers had when the free workers went out to try to get jobs that they were treated worse than the slave owners were treating their, their slaves in the plantation economy. But just as employees and slaves alike can say that their bosses or managers or owners have benefited their lives in similar ways, the reality is both are forms of slavery. They're all forms of slavery, especially relative to the fundamentals of classical uh, uh, liberalism. You see, that's what you're comparing it to. So when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I see classical liberalism in its purest form. And then when we move out into the age of churches, the proliferation of all these churches and people, well, they do good, they do good. I see it the same way as Chomsky sees wage slavery and, and, and regular slavery, that what's happening is it's still a form of slavery that we're putting people in as, as Christians. It's still an institution that's bad. I don't care if a church is a mega church and their people collect a million dollars to give to the poor Ethiopians. It's still coming from an institution that has, that has fallen from the ideal of, of, um, of classical uh, liberalism. So again, specific slave owners and employers and pastors might be good, but the institution themselves, slavery imperialistic corporations and predatory churches are st are not good and never have been good especially in the face of the principles of classical liberalism laid out by John Locke and Humboldt and others so for Chomsky who sold out and completely fluent in the language of capital uh classical liberalism the very idea that a human being could be owned or rented is so antithetical to basic human rights espoused by classical liberalism that he sees anything that smacks of such as inferior, unable to justify itself and its authority, and therefore needing to be destroyed uh, for when it comes uh, to individual liberty. And I am the same mindset when it comes to the faith. That... Uh, uh, the very idea of a Christian being owned or ordered, moved by, a, by someone who claims authority is so antithetical to classic liberalism that uh, I, can't, I can't stand it. And, and I don't think Jesus could stand it. He came to set us free. And so what churches have done is no different than what the industrial revolution and pure capitalism has tried to do and what communism has done 
Chomsky's not for communism. He's not for capitalism, either one. Anything that enslaves the individual. Well, when it comes to the faith, I'm of the same heart, same voice because it's hurting the individual's freedom. So remember, when it comes to freedom and liberty, they are different in their execution. Everyone has faculties of freedom if they have uh, an ability to think. And, and what that means is everyone is free, and this is how. You can have an opinion. You just may not be able to always express it. You have a thought. You have uh, you feelings. And that is how we are free. We are absolutely free to feel the way we want. You could put somebody in, in a, in a uh, whatever that called, straitjacket, and in a dark prison cell, they can still think and feel what they want. That is internal is the best way to see freedom. All right? Liberty is very different, though, because it's the right or the opportunity to freely express those feelings and thoughts and action and even actions, you see. So liberty, therefore, is not available to everybody. Liberty is is uh, truncated in most people's lives one way or another. So liberty is the ability to express one's freedoms without the controlling influence of others overlording over you or interfering or punishing you due to their own personal interests, meaning they will step in and because of their personal interest, step in and try to control you because it benefits them. That's what corporations will do. That's what communism will do. That's what capitalism does. And that's what churches do. They step in and they say, wait a minute, I hear Brother Jones, you're, you're starting to spout this idea? No, that, that, that doesn't work here. We don't, we don't like that, right? Or you're, at, you're working for a corporation that sells bacon and uh, the owner of the company comes and says, hey, I hear you're saying bacon's not healthy for you. Yeah, I, I really don't think it is. Well, you shouldn't be working here. So we have this, this idea of freedom of expression, liberty to express. Liberty to think and express uh, smash down in the faces of these institutional forms, all right? So in classic liberalism, the utmost factor of import is the freedom and the liberty for every human being to self-express, okay? Self-express. In both capitalism and communism, those factors are hindered. And in religion, they're hindered too. Every religion I have ever experienced, expression of it, it's hindered. If you say, I think homosexuality is okay. <clears throat> if you say, I think God is a trinity and you're a binity church. <clears throat> if you say, I think uh, the Holy Spirit's female. <clears throat> it's truncated self-expression. So the very nature of religion is against classical liberalism. And that's the beginning idea of how I became a Christian anarchist. In the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution, the notion of owning people, slaves, transferred over to people being rented. And Chomsky's really good at articulating how this happened and why. In other words, the only difference between slavery and renting yourself out uh, to others for pay is one is permanent and the other one ends at the end of the nine to five or at the end of the five day work week. 
That's, that's one of the main differences is that one is never ends and the other one ends. So as it is with slavery, where the slave has no say in production, no say in schedules, no say in direction of labor and to what he or she earns or how they do it. So it is with most human beings in the slave wage. When you are in the slave wage of somebody else, you don't have a say on how to do it, when to do it, the way to do it. And you typically don't have a say on how much you get paid for doing it, generally speaking. All right. Well, that comes the same, that happens the same thing with church is that when you're part of the institution, they tell you, we want it done this way, we want it done. And so what happens is freedoms and liberties are continually being removed from the individuals involved. That is anathema to what Christ came and did for individual human beings. We should have freedom and liberty in Christ to be and do what we want. We will face God ourselves and be responsible for what we did with our lives and our thoughts and our actions and our beliefs. The churches say no. So in other words, the boss, the owner, the manager, both over slavery and wage slavery, decide what is done, how it's done, when it's done, and they do that with the churches. In a capitalistic society, the wage slave typically has to agree to the owner's terms so that they can eat and so that they can beg, buy gas and they can pay their bills. And so what you happen, what, what happens in a general sense, not always, is that you're so desperate to be able to survive that you have to, you have to accept the um, conditions of employment offered by the employer. And that crushes that classical liberal uh, spirit of freedom and liberty. Most important, people rent themselves out to any respectable job because they're not at liberty or equipped to take the time to really choose or to refuse one. Most people, not all. I mean, there's people who can make their own way and, and they're leaning more toward the, the liberal side of life. But when you are just going hand to mouth and you've got you've to eat, you'll take your employer's uh, demands just like a slave will take the demands of their slave owner. So got all that? That was a lot. That was the basis, right? On to anarchy now, all right? Which in, in, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, anarchy is a response to those imperialistic systems that are saying, you have to do it this way. Whether it's communism, whether it's industrial revolution, whether it's capitalism, whether it's a church, anarchy is saying, you know, I don't like having my freedom and my liberties taken. I want to return back to classical liberalism. And that is rarely understood by people who are critics of it. So there's a wide spectrum when it comes to anarchistic views of the world and with each of them pretty much differing or specializing in their unique take of how to reform things back to where the individual has the ability to choose and to be right and free and at liberty to express it. Right there, we have a problem when we hear the term anarchy and we assume to know the difference between it and some bomb-throwing radical who's trying to destroy for destruction's sake. I have never been talking about that. I've never believed that, either secularly or in the church. I, I'm not about that. Um, sadly, many of our critical brothers decided that Christian anarchy 
was an endorsement for chaos and lawlessness and disorder. Chomsky makes it clear that most anarchists are very orderly. They are very systematized in their thinking and they go about it to try to accomplish their goals, which we're going to cover before we wrap this up. So lawlessness and disorder and chaos, that is not Christian anarchy as I see it, nor is it the way that most secular anarchists operate either. So let's set this straight, and I'm going to borrow from Chomsky and uh, to help navigate the, the remaining discussion. What most people think when they think of anarchy is rebelliousness. Well, that's because the powers that be want to call you a rebel. You know, the leaders of the imperialistic institutions, they want to label you rebellious, right? Why am I rebellious? Because I just want to be free? That's rebelliousness? Well, yes, it is. You're not obeying our rules. Well, you want to call it rebelliousness. I just want to call it desire to be free like Christ made me. So as a philosophy, the tenets are far more nuanced in order than destruction for destruction's sake. And to this fact, all you got to do is tune in to any time Chomsky's talked, and he's an anarchist, a dissident, a dissident. And look at any, when he's young, old, or whatever, he's calm, he talks, he doesn't believe in bomb throwing, he doesn't believe in violence, he's respectful. That's what it is, okay? That's what it is. And yet we want to go with the guy with the capital A in a circle throwing a bomb out in the street, and we say, they're an anarchist, it's all terrible. That's not true. It's not true. So uh, unfortunately, most of our views of anarchism are formed by that. But as stated, like most philosophies, anarchism and anarchists come in a broad spectrum. So there are some of those radicals. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi was considered an uh, anarcho-pacifist. That's a form of anarchism. But let's back, uh, step back from the specialty flavors of anarchy and look at the generalities. Chomsky explains anarchy like this. Ready? Primarily, anarchism is a tendency that is suspicious and skeptical of domination, authority, and hierarchy. It seeks structures of hierarchy and domination in human life over the whole range extending from, say, patriarchal families to, say, imperial systems, and it asks whether those systems are justified. It asks whether those systems are justified. Speaking of the system, he says their authority is not self-justifying. They have to give a reason for it, a justification. And if they can't justify that authority and power and control, which is usually the case, then the authority ought to be dismantled and replaced by something more free and just. And he says, as I understand it, anarchy is that tendency. It takes different forms at different times. <clears throat> so by labeling himself as an anarchist, Chomsky stating that he doesn't believe that all the institutions and systems that underpin our society are just and that they lack the capacity to justify their assumption of authority. Did you hear that? So he says, they, an anarchist looks for uh, uh, situations of dominion, authority, and power going on, and they say, you, authority, power, and dominion, are you just in your authority to do what you're doing? 
And if they cannot self-justify, then they seek about to dismantle that and replace it with something superior. That exactly fits what Christian anarchy and campus and what we're doing. Is that I'm looking out and I see dominion, authority, and power being input on people in God's name. And I say, justify your authority. Where did it come from? How did you get it? Why do you get to tell me how to see this scripture versus somebody else? And when you can't self-justify, I will seek to dismantle you and replace you with something better. Now that sounds radical and rebellious, but that's in harmony with the truth and with light in this world. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The pastors and, and, the, and the rulers, oh no, that's terrible, that's terrible, that's, that's lawlessness, that's disobedience, baloney. That is helping emancipate people from your idiotic power structure. You see? By labeling himself as an anarchist, Chomsky is stating that he doesn't believe that all the institutions and systems that underpin our society have a position of authority. I don't think that when it comes to the Christian faith. This is the heart of anarchism, guys, to call out the current systems as illegitimate because they are incapable of reasonably justifying their existence of authority over other people. And then the follow-up or second part within anarchy is once a system cannot justify itself as having authority to direct other people's lives and beliefs and self-expression, it needs to be, quote-unquote, dismantled and replaced with something better. Popular culture and reactionary souls have a tendency to focus on the dismantling part first. Oh, they're an anarchist. They want to dismantle. That's, they look at the second portion of what Chomsky says. But in reality, the primary part is first to look at an organization and say, prove, justify your authority. I want to understand where you get it from. And I want you to prove it to me. And when they can't, the dismantling part, the deconstruction part comes in, which gives the anarchist the bad name. So as stated, there are a whole bunch of groups, governments, industries, families, religions that step forward and they claim authority and the right to dominate others to hell with classical liberalism. John Locke, we don't need any of that. We need people to, you know, march and be in line so that everything flows and everything works right. Right? We don't want rogue waves. Rogue waves sink ships. We want all the waves going in the right direction so the ship knows how to go. Don't rock the boat. Don't be rebellious. Right? Chomsky makes it very clear that it is the duty of those who have assumed authority to justify their assumption. Next week, I'm going to prove or talk about how these religious institutions have no authority. None upon which they can govern people's lives, beliefs, thoughts, liberties, or freedoms. None. They can't prove it. They can't self-justify. Not one damn one of them. I think at least governments and, and politicians have more of a ground to say I was voted in and things like that. But when it comes to church, there should be no greater anarchists on this earth than Christians. 
who say, my, my total allegiance comes from Christ, not from you, who've usurped authority and try to impose it upon other people. So again, they have to, they have to justify their dominance. And if you really think about it, it's not easy to do. Uh, I mean, really, who gives someone the right to tell another person how they can think or believe or pray or live their freaking life? It's between the individual and their maker. He's the supreme arche. Everything else is anarche compared to him. So, again, when it comes to the number of specific forms of, of anarchy out there, all of them are focused on, one, challenging the powers that be to justify their position of authority, and two, once that authority is not proved justifiable, to then dismantle that power and replace it with a better system. Where Chomsky is an anarch-syndicalist and, and others are Soviet commun communists and other anarchists are social democrats and all of that stuff, uh, I am a Christian anarchist. That is what I am. And thy first question, the claims and the, the demands for allegiance, their claims of authority, religious people on others. And if they cannot justify that dominion, I seek to dismantle that system and I seek to replace it with something better. So test me on those principles. Test me on, can I prove other institutions' authority false? And can I prove a replacement is better than what they have uh, uh, established and considered to be the truth? Remember the definition Chomsky gave to anarchy in general, a tendency that is suspicious and skeptical of domination, authority, and hierarchy. It seeks structures of hierarchy and domination in human life over the whole range, extending from, say, patriarchal families to, say, imperial systems, and asks whether those systems are justified. If the system can't justify that authority and power and control, which is the usual case, then the authority ought to be dismantled and replaced by something more free and more just. Anarchism, especially political and social anarchism, are all efforts, unless radicalized and out to destroy for destruction's sake, to return to the nascent ideals of classical liberalism. Um, which were espoused, again, by men like Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson and Humboldt and John Locke and Adam Smith, which people don't really realize, and the like. Christian anarchy in some ways was promoted by Jacques Hillel, that's his French name, and uh, Leo Tolstoy. But my specific form has nothing to do with either of those because they were also secular anarchists. I am not. Next week, I'll continue with part two, which will address point one of I want them to justify their authority, prove it. And point two, if they can't, it should be dismantled and it should be replaced by something better. Write your comments below. We're not going to leave yet. We have comments to read. How far do we go? How, how long do we have you guys? Okay. Really quickly, we're going to start with, you ready, Seth? Re relative to the show, Religious Manipulations, Nick Tyron says, isn't Nelson Mr. Burns of The Simpsons? 
I guess there's a character named Mr. Burns. I've never watched The Simpsons in my life. And I guess that he looks like him. Uh, Chris S. says of the show Book of Mormon Blunders, Book of Mormonian, question mark, question mark, unpleasant. <laughs> we, I, I created that term to show that the Book of Mormon was created in layers like an onion. The outside skin was one layer deeper, 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 deeper till you get to the core. So actually, while it might be unpleasant, it's a pretty good way to understand how that thing was created. Uh, Melanie Martin on Christians who don't go to church talking about Christian anarchy. And by the way, uh, we have a lot of people who are uh, really interested in that new show we're doing, Christian Anarchy. That airs on Fridays. Seth and Wendy let it go out then. We pre-record it, but it's me and Steve Utley and Ethan. And we sit together and we talk about different concepts. And we talked about the idea of Christians who don't go to church. And uh, Melanie, she wrote, I've often felt not judged, but as an outsider at church, there always seems like there is a network of friends and family that are the pastors, the worship teams, and the, and in the groups together. I've never felt that I was wanted, even though there were some people that were super kind to me. And that goes hand in hand with the idea of, of groups. Last week on Christian Anarchy uh, Today, Ethan pointed out that Men will always take something and they'll turn it into something it shouldn't be. And so Melanie, I think, is uh, speaking to that. We're going to jump down. Gosh, this thing keeps leaving me, Seth. We're going to jump down um, from Melanie's comment um, to Cloud Strife. That's on the interview with Kwaku L. Cloud Strife says Mormonism is a scary, corrupt religion. This kid, talking about Kwaku L, has no clue what he talks about and makes fallacious statements. There are too many holes in Mormon doctrine. Also, Mormonism is a religion. Christian is not. It's a relationship with God. Jesus hated uh, religion. I'm glad you said that, Cloud Strife. I hope you agree that uh, what you've just said there should support the dismantling of Christian churches and their institutions and their power and their orders of other people. Christ hated religion. If we have religions out there, they should be dismantled, not just Mormonism, but everything. Troll Under the Bridge, speaking of religious pizza show, says debate people on the phone again. I love that stuff. Troll, people don't call us. I don't think people want to talk on the phone. I think they would rather write comments and have me read them and talk about them. And the calls we did get were usually repeat callers. When we did the live show on TV, I never took repeat callers unless it was a guy named John O'Fallon. Neeselment uh, says, excellent regarding we are saved by grace alone, not works. Regarding the show Christians who don't go to church, again, Timothy Williams says the church is not a building, but a whole body of believers. In this respect, a Christian does not have to go to a building. Amen. Amen. And here in this age of COVID, I heard a statistic this morning that half of the church's uh, congregates are gone now from churches. That's a great start. That's a fantastic start. Let's go back to the organic grassroots. Hey, man, you want to meet McDonald's and read the Bible? Okay, not that McDonald's was around then, but let's get rid of that stuff. I mean, just imagine the terror those pastors are having that all their congregates aren't going to come back and fill the pews so that they can tell them how to live uh, the rest of their life. I think it's wonderful. 
Uh, Christians who don't go to church, a, across 0877 says, amen, good stuff. Uh, Christians who don't go to church, Karen Cross says, is it Jesus only or do you need baptism too? It's Jesus only. Is salvation by grace or do you also need a sacrament too? It's salvation by grace. Is it a gift from God or do you also need bishops and deacons too? It's a gift from God. Paul says all these things, which is contradicting. Ah, oh, Karen, let's explain that. Paul, remember, was bringing a bride that had to be pure and holy and without spot through to the end of that time when Jesus was going to return and take her. She had to be pure. She had to be led and was led of apostles who had, were inspired by the Spirit. So when Paul was talking, he was talking to them then. We can read the Bible and absorb principles and good lessons from it, but none of his epistles were written to us today. So when you say he's contradicting, he really isn't. She goes on, Jesus supposedly said, love God and neighbor. Supposedly. If you love him, feed his sheep. Jesus certainly didn't set up a church and the spirit is referred to as the rock of his called out assembly. Some people need a church for many reasons. Some don't for other reasons. I just can't see the Bible as authoritative. This is all over the place. It's authoritative in, in the sense that it is giving you information that by the Spirit you can choose to embrace for yourself or not. It doesn't have any authority. If I hold the Bible, I don't have authority. It in itself is the Word of God when translated uh, uh, by the Spirit, and it gives you guidance. That's what the Bible's for. Um, she says, it used to be authoritative, and then I read it, studied it. I am a Jesus-only woman. So when Paul contradicts Jesus, as some epistles do, I go with Jesus every time. Well, I got to tell you, sister, you have a serious deficit in your logic relative to Paul and, and being a Christian. Because if you just follow Jesus' words, you have to be a Jew, because that's who he talked to when he walked the earth. He never talked to Gentiles about the gospel. He never told them or addressed them on how to be a Christian. He talked to Jews. If you're a Jew, Karen, all right, you might get away with that relative to the law. Paul came and explained how Jesus' work on the earth applies to non-Jews. That's the value of Paul's uh, insights to us. So I think you got to be careful. When people say, I just follow Jesus' words, um, then I would like to take all of Jesus' words and apply them to you. And you'll see quickly that you're going to fail in that. Um, I don't think you understand what autism means. When, it's, when I wrote, when he did a show called Christian Autism. Well, I don't know the clinical definition, but autism, I think, is derived from the root word of auto. And, uh, and it means yourself. You're totally self-absorbed. In fact, autistic people are so involved with the self, they can't break outside their own world. They can't see outside their own brain or their own uh, ideas and stuff. So I might not have the clinical definition, but I think I understand it in that sense. Um, topical suggestion from Gustavo. Churches have no psychology degree and offer mental help to desperate, sad people. That is true. Sometimes psychologists and psychiatrists uh, might be very beneficial to people who are of faith. Gustavo writes again, Christian is someone who partakes the idea that Jesus existed and is the Son of God. Oh, okay. And then Blue, Con, Blue, Blue Cron 77 
Speaking of Christians who don't go to church, I can't believe they just agreed that a Christian is one who never accepted Christ in the literal sense. That's a great question. It's a, it's a criticism of what we were talking about on that show. Because what Steve and Ethan and I agreed to is that a person doesn't have to know the name Jesus in order to be a Christian. And he's saying that is just unbelievable. You have to know him in the literal sense. Well, the, the caveat to that, my friend, Blue Cron 77, is that if Jesus was God with us, and if you acquiesce to there being a supreme being who you call God or whatever, you don't really have to know the given name of Jesus. You just have to know that the Spirit is calling you and you, you acquiesce to what you've been given, what you have. So I so disagree with you with that archaic notion that you have to know Jesus' name because one, we don't even have his name right. We call him Jesus and, and it's Yeshua. And, and we don't know him in the literal sense. What I mean by that is epistemologically we might know him. He's about love. He's about faith and, and doing well with others and turning the other cheek. But we don't know him ontologically. We don't know if he had a long beard or long hair or no beard and short hair. We don't know so much about him. So you say to know him in a literal sense, I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure you can make that argument. In fact, I would say there are people who are in the Aborigines who don't know Jesus in the literal sense, but are just as good of a Christian as you or I am because the Spirit of Christ is in them guiding them. That's how I would respond to Blue Crown. Okay, uh, going on with that. I'm not going to cover all those. Wow. Um... Talking about our show, Christian Anarchy, that's drawn up some heat. Blue Cron says, I'm not sure how asking really young Christians, Steve is 24 and um, Ethan is 15, who barely know the Bible. That's an assumption, isn't it? Blue Cron, 77. How do you know they barely know the Bible? Do you know anything about them? Do you know them personally? I do have not heard a single Bible verse yet, how we're supposed to learn from what we're not learning anything Christian-wise. I don't really understand the full statement, but he's criticizing them, one, because they're young. Timothy was young too, by the way. And he says they don't know the Bible, and they're not even quoting verses. Uh, Steve was raised in the, in the church. He knows the Bible pretty darn well. He knows the concepts. Ethan has been raised super religiously, and he would cut his teeth on and believe still in churches and their benefit to people. So both of them uh, either came from or still are in Christian religion, steeped in it. They know the Bible, brother, and they're just talking about stuff in ways that you just aren't accustomed to. That's why we call it Christian anarchy today. Uh, Jim Smith says, great points relative to the show. Sean, can you stop with the finger pointing and out business at the end of your videos? You just gave a talk about love, then come off kind of hard during your closing. Wouldn't something like God's peace and love be with you until we meet again be a little better? It's your show, dude. Uh, you do what you want. Mine is only a suggestion. And he ends with peace, brother. Um, I am going to change the out because of that. I am going to do out. <laughs> you, you didn't like this finger. I'll give you a different one. <laughs> Dude, 
I mean, come on. Do, do, really? Peace and love to you. And we will see you again. Like every religious station that you have, anybody who's on it talking about things, maybe we will see you next week. You know, shut up. Just, just. Uh, okay. Uh, Moon Man 55 says, what do you do when Elder Urim and Thummim knock on your door? Tell them your name is Mahanrai Moriankamer. These Trinity guys need to take a pill, man. They're way too uptight and serious about this triune thing. They're ready to burn you up in hell forever for not believing that thang, is what he said. Thang, T-H-A-N-G. Yeah, they're a little bit wild. Uh, Steve Wayne Jones, his comments are all over there. I'm not going to read his. He goes on and on and he has an agenda and he wants to disprove uh, uh, my comments on the Trinity collusion. And you can read about him and you can see if you believe what he has to say. I'm not going to read them because they're too long and I don't, I, don't, I don't find them to be enlightening. But Stephen Wayne Jones, those are his comments. Um, and we're almost done here. Sean, grateful for your ex-Mormon work. This is from Lanagame on Trinity Collusion. You're obviously not a fan of the tri-unity explanation attempted to help others understand the mysterious infinite God. I'm struggling to understand what it is you're now offering as your current understanding regarding ontology. Thanks for all your help and your good material. Uh, my, my belief is uh, just to cite scripture, what Paul says, there's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I explain it. Um, relative to the eternality of all of them and being co-created, un, uh, un, uncreated, co-equal, co-eternal, all those things, three in one. Uh, I, I don't believe in some of that. I believe in some of it. But in, in, in essence, if someone asks me, what do you believe? I think there is one God, the Father. That's quoting Paul. Uh, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. That's how I see it. And, and everything, I think Jesus was God with us, but I'm not going to go into that right now. I love you, Sean Thor Bradshaw says. Uh, proper Jedi master look there, bro, says Design Core. Peace and love. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Vicki Smith says, when a Mormon person dies who had repented and lived a very virtuous life over 60 year passes, where does their spirit go when their spirit leaves their body? What does scripture say happens? I know what the Mormon religion teaches, but I want to know what... Christ taught. Can you give me scriptural references in the Bible? Well, Vicki, if I had prepared, I could. But bottom line, not much is said. We have absent from the body, present with the Lord uh, for those who are believers. Um, uh, we also have some strong evidence from 1 Corinthians 15, where when you die, you will be resurrected and get a spiritual body based on the goodness of God, according to what he wants to give you. And uh, you'll enter into the New Jerusalem as a believer or you'll be outside of it as a non-believer or whatever. That's, those are the essentials really of what we have. And the glories have not been seen for those who love him, the, the glories that await. So those are kind of the four or five things we know about that. Whether they're Mormon or Catholic or Baptist or nothing is almost irrelevant in my estimation. It's whether they had a heart for God and... Uh, and uh, and live that way. And then finally, uh, I talked about a merciful translation uh, transition show that when you die, I think God mercifully uh, brings you in to his presence. And if you're a Muslim, he allows you to continue your Muslim thoughts. And if you're a Christian, 
your Christian thoughts? And I said, I believe that because uh, that's how he brings us into this world with tender caring parents, usually, not always. And that in that world, we're going to be moving into a new place. And he allows us to come to our own and uh, get more productions. As Sean is, where is any of this biblical? You have not provided any scripture to back this up. Spirit goes back to the Father. Uh, uh, it, it's not biblical. It's the idea. I, we'll talk about things that aren't biblical or my my thoughts. But uh, I know God is merciful, and that's biblical. And so what I said, get more productions was. I doubt very much that God is having people die and they face him laughing and Satan laughing and taking and putting them into hell. I don't see a merciful God doing that to people. And that is where I base the, uh, my thoughts on. We're going to stop there. and We really do appreciate your comments. They're growing. So I'm going to have to probably take some time and kind of go through them so you don't have to go through them with me. Decide what's worth reading and commenting on and what's not. Uh, write your comments below. Nevertheless, make them good. Make them, make them critical or make them supportive. Make them good and sound. Take your time. Don't write big ones. Small, concise, aphoristic thoughts. And we'll read them next week here on Heart of the Matter. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thanks, baby.